How many Bibles do you have in your home this morning? How many do you have in your possession? How many English Bibles belong to your name? I was interested to know the answer for myself, so I counted at the office and asked my wife, I said, can you count at home? What we found is that there's close to 50 English Bibles that belong to the Howard name. Maybe you're like, well, you're a pastor, it's supposed to be that way. I I like to have all the translations, and when new translations come out, I want to buy them, I want to see what's going on. But I would imagine many of you have double digits in your home, double digit amount of Bibles to your name. It's not even counting having the Bible uh, accessible on our phones. But for many in the world today, the idea of having just one page of Scripture in their own heart language is a dream. A dream. And if you were to rewind to the 1500s, our English-speaking brothers and sisters of that era would look at us with pure awe. To own 50 Bibles, this would be an abundance of riches in their eyes. A gratuitous heap of glory lining the bookshelves. A heap of glory worth more than all the gold that you could find in the world. They would marvel at the different translations that we'd have. They would marvel at the study notes. They would marvel at the precision of the print on the page. They would marvel at the ease with which one of us could go and get an English Bible. They might wonder, how do they even have time to do anything but read their Bibles? They would think with such knowledge at the heart's fingertips, how could you ever pull yourself away and, and, and go on about the duties of your day? They wouldn't ask, did you read your Bible today? They would just assume you read your Bible. I mean, who could ignore such a treasure? And they would be right. We are a Bible-rich people in the English-speaking world. There is more Bible curriculum, Bible studies, Bible podcasts, Bible software, Bible reference books, Bible websites, Bible YouTube videos, and just flat-out Bibles in circulation today than there has ever been. But there was a time when this was not so. There was a time when an English-speaking believer had no access to the Word of God, There was a time when the Bible had been locked away from the sheep of God by the so-called shepherds of God. And there was a man who laid everything on the line to undo that wrong. And I want to tell you about that man today. He is a man who has shaped the way that you speak the English language. He is a man that has shaped the way that you talk about your faith. He is the most important historical figure to the modern English language. And he is the man that delivered the Lord's word to you in the English language, your native tongue, with his blood. A man we are all indebted to beyond our ability to even really articulate it. A man that God gave to the world at the right time for the right work in the right region, all for the sake of the right word of God. And that man's name is William Tyndale. And on a weekend where we're preparing to celebrate our freedom in this country as Americans, A freedom that recognizes our God-given liberty to do things like read our Bibles and come to church and learn from our Bibles. We should stop and we should remember William Tyndale. For just as many have died to protect your God-given rights as an American, William Tyndale died so you can have a Bible to read in the land of the free. Father God, today is different. I'm not going to exposit a text, but a man. I'm not going to exegete a scripture, but a life. I'm not going to teach through a passage, but a person. 
And yet, Lord, it's good for us to do this, to stop at times and to study those that have gone before us that are in the great cloud of witnesses who by faith have conquered, because in them we learn much of you and we learn of something that we must be. As we look to your servant's work and we stop and we meditate upon the scriptures along the way this morning, provoke our hearts, Lord, to have an unquenchable and an undying thirst for our Bibles. That we would long to be satisfied in you in the word. We want to look past William Tyndale today, Lord, through him. For in his faithfulness, what do we see but yours? In his sacrifice, what do we see but your worth? In his life, what do we see but your son? So Lord, give us the heart of William Tyndale this morning, but more than that, give us the heart of his Redeemer. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Our subject for the day, William Tyndale was born in 1490s. We, we don't know exactly when because it was the 1490s. Nobody knew he was as important as he was when he was born, so they didn't mark the exact date. But he grew up in Gloucestershire, England, on the border of England and Wales. He was born to a very privileged family, and they could afford to send him to Oxford when he was just 12 years old. So yes, the time that most of our children are thinking about Fortnite and and pre-algebra, William Tyndale was headed to Oxford. He had two brothers, both of which would join him in his Reformation convictions. His brother John would even get in trouble for distributing Bibles later on in his adult life. But from 1506 to 1516, from the ages 12 to 22, William Tyndale is at Oxford and he is learning. And this is where William Tyndale becomes a man. This is where he grows up. This is where he earns his degree, and as he is doing it, his mind is progressing at a rapid rate. He is becoming one of the most brilliant linguists and one of the most brilliant minds of Europe during this time where he is staying at Oxford. He speaks seven languages. He is daily listening to lectures. He's reading books, which were handwritten, by the way. He's not studying theology during most of his time there until the end. At the end of his time at Oxford, Tyndale took up an interest in the study of God, and yet he was not allowed to study the Bible. Think about that. The theology students at Oxford, and theology is the study of God, are not allowed to study the Bible. If it doesn't make any sense, you're right, but you have to understand the political and religious environment and climate and atmosphere that William Tyndale was born into. Before him, upstream from the Protestant Reformation, was a man named John Wycliffe. And Wycliffe had argued that the Bible was the supreme authority over the Christian life, not the church. And after Wycliffe died, his followers carried on, and they were called the Lollards. Pushing back against the Lollards, ensuring that England would remain in spiritual darkness, the church decided and declared unilaterally You cannot translate the Bible into English, just in case you were thinking of it. Thomas Arundel, the Archbishop of Canterbury, so you could say the most important spiritual leader in 1408 in England, said it is a dangerous thing to translate the text of the Holy Scripture out of one tongue into another, for in the translation the same sense is not always easily kept. We therefore decree and ordain that no man hereafter by his own authority translate any text of the scripture into English or any other tongue. No man can read any such book in part or in whole. 
That was the state of the church in England as William Tyndale was born, as the 16th century is beginning. The church still recognizes Rome as its authority at this point. That would not change until King Henry wants his marriage annulled in 1534. And so, in the world that William Tyndale is born in, in the world that he grows up in, there is just one church. And that church claimed the language of the Bible is Latin. Now, that's not true. The New Testament is written in Greek, and the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. There's Aramaic, but they said it's Latin. Why would the church say that the language of the Scriptures is Latin? Why would they be adamant that the Bible is kept in Latin? Why would they make it even illegal to translate the Bible from Latin into English? Well, the reason that they gave the public was the Bible is too hard for the common person to understand, so a priest who's trained in Latin has to be the one to read it and then bring it down from the mountain to the people. But we know that's not true. We just saw little Stella be baptized this morning. She may not understand the finer points of eschatology, but she understands Christ and Christ, uh, Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. The necessities of salvation are crystal clear. A childlike faith can grab on to the essentials of the gospel and cling to them for the rest of, of life. So that's not the answer. Could it be that something a bit more underhanded was in play and that is why they did not want the scriptures to be translated out of the Latin? Could it be that as long as the scriptures are in Latin, the common people can't read it? And if the common people can't read it for themselves, they'll never find out that the superstitions and traditions that we added in, things like purgatory, things like buying indulgences to try to earn your way out of purgatory, that sort of stuff, they might find out it's not actually true. That it's not actually in the Bible. And if they find that out, we'll lose our power over them. And we can't have that. Therefore, they fought hard to keep God's word locked up in the linguistic prison of Latin so no common laborer could ever get their hands on it. And so if you just taught the Bible in English, it was heresy. It was punishable by death. The very least that you would get would be imprisonment. If you even taught the Bible outside of the authority of the church in England, even if you're using the Latin, it's illegal. To give you an idea of how no-nonsense the brutality is surrounding these mandates and regulations, in 1519, seven Lollards, the followers of John Wycliffe, are burned at the stake just for teaching the Lord's Prayer to their children in English. That was the crime. Doing something most of us do before our kids can even speak, we try to start teaching them that prayer in English. Think about the statement those men made with their lives. They were saying... My babies are better off in this world knowing how to pray in their heart language than they would be having me in this world not knowing how to pray in their heart language. That's conviction. Now add into that the Reformation fire that is blowing through Europe. You have the church's stance, but there is a flame that is moving through the continent as Tyndale is going from Oxford to Cambridge to start his doctoral studies in 1519, somewhere in his mid-twenties. you got to understand how hot the Protestant fire is starting to burn in Europe at this time. Jan Hus, who was Prague's reformer, 
the great Czech reformer, is killed for his teachings, for criticizing the church in 1415. And before he dies, he tells them, you can kill me the goose, his name translated to goose in Czech. He said, you want to kill me, you can kill me. But 100 years from now, a swan will rise up in Europe and you will not be able to silence that swan. 102 years later, Martin Luther nails his 95 theses to the door at the church in Wittenberg. Did he believe himself to be that swan? Oh, 1,000% he did. He was vocal about being that swan. And indeed, the church could not silence him. The milestone dates of the era tell you just how historic this time period is. John Knox The great reformer of Scotland is born in 1505. John Calvin, the reformer of Switzerland, is born in 1509. Luther is refusing to recant, and he is questioning the Pope's infallibility in 1518 and 1519. Zwingli, who is uh, the predecessor to Calvin, he's starting, he's launching the Swiss Reformation in 1519. And the Anabaptist movement is rising up in Germany in 1522. Europe and the church in Europe are under theological siege from every angle. The Reformation is on fire and the second generation of reformers are being born and the toothpaste is not going back in the tube. This is the world that William Tyndale is moving around in as he sets foot on the campus of Cambridge to start a doctoral degree that he will never finish. While at Cambridge, Tyndale finds himself gathering with a group of students at a pub. A pub. I know Baptists. Let's let's control ourselves. The Protestant Reformation kicked off in a pub in England. But at a pub called the White Horse Inn, there was Robert Barnes and Hugh Latimer. There was Miles Coverdale, whose name will be very important in a moment. Thomas Cranmer. Yes, that Thomas Cranmer. The one who who put together, compiled the Book of Common Prayer, one of the most important Christian books ever made outside of the scriptures themselves. Nicholas Ridley, Thomas Bilney, these are the men who become the leaders of the Protestant Reformation in England, and they're inspired by what Luther's doing in Germany, and they are sitting down together at this pub in Cambridge, and they're wading into the Reformation waters together, and they are forming convictions that they are all going to be willing to die for. In 1521, Tyndale walks away from his education. We don't quite know why, but we can guess that the Reformation fire is too hot for him to play at the cool game of politics. He has to get close to the fire. And for Tyndale, that doesn't mean getting close to Luther or Zwingli or any other man. It's the Word of God. That's the heartbeat of the Protestant Reformation. It's the word of God. What are they trying to reform the church to? Back to what we see in the Bible, what we see in the word. Now, despite the state of things in England, as Tyndale gets fired up about the Bible, he's not alone. Europe is in love with a Greek translation of the New Testament that was compiled by a man named Erasmus. Erasmus published his Greek New Testament in 1516, and it's a landmark moment because now if someone wants to take the Greek New Testament and translate it into their heart language straight from the original, they can do it. Tyndale can bypass the Latin. He can use this Greek tool that's beloved all around the continent, and that, I believe, is why Tyndale leaves Cambridge. 
He fell in love with Erasmus' New Testament. He fell in love with the truth that he found in the Word. And he fell in love with every Englishman having their own Bible and getting to have the same experience. Tyndale said it was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except the Scripture relayed before their eyes in their mother tongue. And so he leaves Cambridge. He goes to work for a man named Sir John Walsh. He's going to be a tutor to Walsh's kids just 12 miles from the place where Tyndale is born. We're pretty sure this is all a cover. Why would this brilliant linguist, this Oxford-educated man, go and tutor these kids? He's way overqualified for a work like this. It's very likely that Tyndale is already studying the scriptures with an aim toward translation and that Sir John Walsh is housing him because he himself has some Reformation leanings. We know Tyndale during this time is preaching throughout the region. Again, that would have been illegal. He's unsettling leaders in the church, but there's no formal trouble yet. The real breaking point comes for him at a dinner party. It's no stretch to say that a mouthy priest at a nobleman's table set off the chain of events that led to you having your Bible this morning. Tyndale's eating at the Walsh's. Local priests are gathering for the evening. It's a dinner party, and one of them starts debating Tyndale at the dinner table in front of everyone, and it gets heated. And this man says, we would be, we, we'd be better without God's laws than the Pope's, meaning, let's just get rid of the Bible. We don't need it. The Pope will tell us what the Bible says. We don't need the laws of God. Tyndale responds. He says, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And then he quotes words from Erasmus's intro to his Greek New Testament and says, if God spared him life ere many year, he would cause a boy that drives a plow to know more of the scripture than the Pope. And from this moment forward, William Tyndale is about this in his life. The plow boy having a Bible. And William Tyndale sets his face toward the translation of the Bible into English, like Jesus setting his face toward Jerusalem in the book of Luke, like Paul setting his face toward Rome in the book of Acts. It is all he cares about. It is the driving impetus for his life. Galatians 3, 27 and 28 says, For as many of you... uh, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's no hierarchy in the Lord's baptism waters. We might be called to different roles in the family and in the church and might have different levels of authority, but we are all equal in the old earthly titles that divide society and create inequality in the world. Well, it's not that way in the church. Because our union with Christ has dissolved those categories to the point that they don't divide us. Our identity in Christ supersedes all of that. Not that we cease to be male or cease to be female or cease to be Jew or cease to be Greek. But now those titles bow down to the title of Christian. And for William Tyndale, this meant there should be nobody in the church that should have the Bible locked away from them. If there's no hierarchy in the waters of baptism, then every single believer in Jesus Christ should be able to read the word of their Lord in their heart language, and it should be the authority over their life. And with that conviction, he goes to the Bishop of London in 1523, Cuthbert Tunstall, and he uh, you know, says, I'm going to translate the Bible. Authorize it. Authorize me to translate the Bible into English. 
Tunstall is very impressed by Tyndale, but he says no. And that's no surprise because he is under the authority of Cardinal Thomas Wolsey in King Henry's court. Wolsey was a bully, politically powerful, religiously powerful, and there was never a chance that he was going to authorize the translation of the Bible into English. He very famously said, be very, very careful about what you put into that head of yours because you will never, ever get it out. It's not a bad quote. Unfortunately, Wolsey believed the scriptures in English were something that Englishmen should not have in their heads. And so they say no to Tyndale. He stays in London for about a year with a rich merchant named Henry Monmouth. Monmouth had Lollard leanings. He was an early adopter of Protestant beliefs. And so he housed Tyndale as Tyndale continued to study and continued to preach. But eventually it became clear to Tyndale he would have to leave England if he is going to translate the Bible into English. There's two main reasons for this. One, the politics aren't going to allow it. And two, there's a thousand printers in Europe at the time. There's only two in England. They're very famous. Unfortunately, they're very famous for being terrible at their jobs. Printing was an arduous process at the time. You had to place individual letters on little wooden blocks and dip them in ink and then press the individual words and sentences onto pages. And those two printers in England were horrible at it. And Tyndale couldn't risk that. He had a very specific way he wanted these Bibles to be made. He wanted his New Testament to be pocket-sized so that the plowboy in the fields could hide it if the authorities were to come hunting for it. A concealed carry, if you will. Tyndale wrote and printed other books, like The Obedience of the Christian Man, but all of his books were little pocket-sized books that you could hide. And the English printers simply didn't have the skill to make books like this. So he takes off for Germany in order to undertake the translation of the New Testament from Greek to English. He's got Henry Monmouth's money backing him. By the way, did Henry Monmouth have any way to know that the money that he was giving to Tyndale was changing the entire course of the world? Of course not. You never know what God might do with your money when you give to kingdom work. Just give and trust him. Monmouth is backing Tyndale as he goes to Germany. He gets there. We have documentation that he went to the University of Wittenberg and seems to attend some classes taught by a certain German monk who also shared a disdain for papal authority, one Martin Luther. After this, he heads to Cologne and he sets up a shop there uh, at at Peter Quintel's uh, printing shop. he's, He's got a deal worked out with Quintel. Quintel's not some Protestant pirate printing books by night. He's a profiteer. He printed Roman Catholic materials. He'll print an English Bible. As long as he can make money, he will print. And he knew there were thousands of English Christians clamoring, waiting for Tyndale's translation. However, in the midst of the work, as Quintel and Tyndale are in the midst of getting this first translation out, one of the printers that worked for Quintel got drunk on wine. And he started mouthing off one night. Yeah, we're printing in the English New Testament and translating it, blah, blah, blah. And a man named John Cockless overhears this, and he hates the Reformation, and he can't stand Protestantism, and he organizes a raid on Quintal's shop. And Tyndale hears about it, and in this scene, like something out of Indiana Jones, we need John Williams' music behind it as like a score, he barrels into the back room of the shop, he gathers up all the work he's done so far, jumps into a boat, and he's heading down the Rhine River to Worms before he can be caught. 
1526, despite the efforts of his enemies, he finishes the translation of the New Testament. It is the first English Bible to be mechanically printed. Smuggled into England by Lutheran cloth merchants. They handed it off to the Christian Brethren, a secret society of English Protestants. And the Christian Brethren take 6,000 of Tyndale's 1526 New Testament and they distribute them throughout England and Scotland. Old Bishop Tunsil hears about it. He gathers up as many as he can find and he arranges. And one of the darkest days in the history of England, the bishop arranges for the Bible to be burned outside of St. Paul's Cathedral. Think about that. The church burned the Bible. In 1527, Tunstall and the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, William Warham, they cook up this brilliant plan where they're going to go around in England and they're going to buy up every last remaining copy of Tyndale's Bible so nobody could get them. What they didn't think about is that all the money they spent just went back to William Tyndale. And then he used it to revise his work and put out a second edition with their resources. Do you love this guy yet? You can't stop him. His opponent said, there's 2,000 errors in it. But of course, they can't even judge it correctly because they're comparing his English to the Latin. They don't know Greek. They can't mess with the Greek. Tyndale said they were so desperate to make a heretic out of him, they would charge him if he forgot to dot an I. The reality is, is that despite the criticism of the church, Tyndale's 1526 New Testament is one of the most important works in the history of the world. That's not an overstatement. It was a towering achievement. The leading historian on Tyndale, David Daniel, says, the 1526 New Testament is triumphantly the work of a Greek scholar who knew that language well, of a skilled translator who could draw on the Latin of the Vulgate and Erasmus and German for help when needed, but above all, a writer of English who was determined to be clear however hard the work of being clear might be. Tyndale improved on his New Testament with revised editions in 1534 and 1535. He made 4,000 improvements and corrections Most of us, if we were to look at those improvements and corrections, would find them to be minor and insignificant. But if you're a brilliant linguist, obsessed with accuracy and clarity, they matter. Tyndale's not done. What's next? The Old Testament, of course. The problem is, is that as smart as he was, he didn't know Hebrew. And here's the problem. Neither did anybody else who spoke English, except the Jewish people. Nobody in England, no Gentile in England knew Hebrew. Not a one. So what did he do? He taught himself Hebrew. It's amazing that he did this. If you talk to any seminary student, they will tell you Greek far easier than dealing with Hebrew. Hebrew is difficult. Just working up enough spit in your mouth to say the words is frankly very difficult. But he taught himself Hebrew. He probably had great access when he was in Worms uh, to uh, different resources that helped him. It was a center for Jewish rabbinical learning, and he probably took advantage of that. He's on the move again as he is doing this work of translating the Old Testament. He's chased into Hamburg, Germany. Lesser men and women would have given up. They would have retired. I mean, come on, you produced a New Testament. Take a vacation. Not Tyndale. He does not give up. And in 1530, the first five books of the Bible, the book of Moses, 
are translated into English and are in circulation. It's a wonderful copy of Genesis to Deuteronomy, complete with a table of terms where he defines words. Basically, if there was a basic term he felt a believer needed to know, he would define it. It's kind of like a study Bible. Curse. Here's an example. God's curse is the taking away of his benefits. As God cursed the earth and made it barren, so now hunger, dearth, war, pestilence, and such like are yet right curses, the signs of the wrath of God to come. It's a study note from William Tyndale's first five books of the Old Testament. All in all, this is an amazing 12-year stretch. From 1524 to 1536, William Tyndale is moving heaven and earth to translate God's word into English, and what he accomplishes is immense. Ecclesiastes 4.4 says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. What Solomon speaks to there is that when you work just to beat your neighbor, to have a better car, to have a better job, to get the higher promotion, to surpass them, to be the one with the most toys, then your reward is on earth and it is ultimately a chasing after the wind. But that is not what the work of translating the Bible was for William Tyndale. He was not competing with his neighbor. He was loving his neighbor. His toil, his skill was driven by a love for his fellow Englishmen. And in that, he was striving after the glory of Christ in his work. In 1531, he actually gets an invitation to return to England by King Henry VIII. The love of Henry's life, at least at the time, if you know anything about him, got one of Tyndale's New Testaments in her hands, and Anne Boleyn is enamored with it. And and Henry recognizes the translation is the work of a brilliant man, and so he makes a request that William Tyndale would come and serve him in his court. And he sends Stephen Vaughn to go and find Tyndale. And Tyndale meets with Vaughn in a field by night. And he makes it clear, I'm an Englishman all the way to the core. I want to bow my knee to the king. That's all I want to do. And I will come and I will serve every waking moment in his court for the rest of my life. I have one request. And you know what it was. Then Henry would authorize the English translation of the Bible. And of course, the answer is no, and Henry is livid, and he just turns up the heat, and he issues even stronger bans on Tyndale's writings. And things are now more dangerous for Tyndale than ever. Evidenced by the fact that in 1533, one of his best friends, John Frith, is burned at the stake for saying that purgatory is not real and that the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, which teaches that the body and the blood, that the elements of the Lord's Supper actually turn into the physical body and blood, uh, denying that doctrine, they burned him at the stake. He died 490 years ago this Tuesday. So as you celebrate your freedom as an American on Tuesday, remember this Christian martyr. In 1534, Tyndale moves to Antwerp in Belgium, and he begins to live in an English merchant's house. The housing is like a dorm, but it's protected like an embassy. It's owned by a man named Thomas Points. Points is a member. We, just don't, we don't have organizations named like this anymore. He was a member of the Worshipful Company of Grocers. A guild of merchants who maintained the purity of spices and scales. And they were a powerful guild. And Tyndale was protected under them. He kept Tyndale safe as he tirelessly worked to complete the second quarter of the Old Testament. Joshua through Second Chronicles and Jonah. 
And if you wonder, why did he do Jonah? It's like he does Genesis to Deuteronomy, then he does Joshua to Second Chronicles. Okay, but why Jonah randomly? It's because he wanted every preacher in London to be able to stand up in their pulpit and say that judgment is coming just as Jonah warned the Ninevites. That's why he translated Jonah when he did. Tyndale's eyes after this are on more revisions. He wants to get all the way to the Old Testament, but there are events underway in England that are going to lead to his death, and he has no way of knowing, and it has nothing to do at this point even with the church and the king. It has to do with a very foolish boy. Far away from Belgium, back in England, there's a wealthy man named Richard Phillips who has served in Parliament, and he's been the high sheriff on more than one occasion. And Richard Phillips, a very wealthy man, wants his wealth to be moved to London. Well, back then, you couldn't just wire it through an app. You had to move your wealth to London. And so, his son, Henry Phillips, is appointed for the task. The problem with that is that his son, Henry Phillips, was a moron. He was. He was a scoundrel. He was a fool. He was a silly man, frivolous. And before he even gets to London, he just eats through most of his father's wealth, like the prodigal with no intention of coming home. The family has some clout. Word gets around that Richard Phillips's boy blew through the fortune. And we don't know if it's the king or if it's the Bishop of London or it's all of them working together, but orders are given to Henry Phillips to go to Antwerp and to befriend Tyndale and to turn on him like Judas. And if he could deceive Tyndale into friendship and turn him over to the authorities, then the church would restore some of his father's wealth. And so he goes to Antwerp and he frequents the merchant's house and he does the one thing he's good at in his life, being a liar, and he befriends William Tyndale. He takes an interest in his work. He offers to help him in it. And then one fateful day in 1535, he waits until Thomas Points is out of town, knowing that Tyndale would be unprotected, and he invites him to lunch. And Tyndale should not have accepted with the Points is out of town, but being a good-natured man of the Lord, he did, thinking that this guy had his best interests at heart. And as they left to go to lunch, Phillips indicates to the authorities that are waiting who William Tyndale is, and they arrest him. And they toss him into prison at Vilvorde Castle. The only bright golden lining around this dark cloud is that his friend, John Rogers, is able to run in and to the merchant's house, get all of Tyndale's unpublished work before the authorities could get to it, and, and he got away with it. Tyndale in prison experiences absolute brutality. He's left in darkness for 16 months. Darkness. Cold, without proper clothing. He makes simple requests. Can I get socks? Can I get some clothes? Can I get a light so I can see? Can I have some books so I can continue my work? And the answer is no, 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 no. What he got instead was repeated visits from Catholic scholars who walked him line by line through his doctrine and through his writing. They would come to him week after week trying to get him to recant. Not to avoid death. He's already going to die. He's committed the crime of translating the Bible into English. This is to save his soul in the afterlife. But Tyndale's already read the original language. He knows exactly what it says about how a soul is justified before God. It's through faith in Jesus Christ, not by practicing any of the man-made superstitions the church had added on. So he stands strong. He does not budge. He will not recant. What a tragic thing to think about the most brilliant linguist in Europe, one of the most brilliant people in human history, sitting in a jail cell in darkness for 16 months. You and I would look at it and say, what a waste. And yet, in God's perfect plan, it wasn't a waste for two people. 
because Tyndale had a jailer and the jailer had a daughter and they cared for him while he was in prison. And by the end of that 16 months, they didn't just know Tyndale, they knew Tyndale's Lord. Because William Tyndale led them both to Jesus. Reminiscent of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Certainly, this must have been how Tyndale saw himself as he converted the jailer and his daughter. And certainly, that jailer and his daughter would have been heartbroken on October 6, 1536, when William Tyndale was removed from his prison cell. They took him out of the priesthood in a humiliating ceremony. They put priestly robes on him and then stripped the robes off of him. And they took glass and they scraped the hands that he had done his translating work with. And they put the bread and the wine of the supper in his hands and then they remove the bread and the wine to show he's no longer a priest and they dress him up like a commoner and he's tied to a stake in the courtyard in the presence of powerful churchmen who've gathered to celebrate the occasion. He's such a great scholar that mercifully they allow him to be strangled before he is burned. So they place a chain around his neck and they choke the brilliant William Tyndale to death. His final words before he is strangled is a prayer. God, open the eyes of the King of England. And after that, they burn his body as a heretic. They lower his body down in the water, or, or into a fire. They put gunpowder in the fire so that his body is blown up into hundreds of pieces and destroyed. Hebrews 11 says others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Of whom the world was not worthy. That was William Tyndale. As we close this morning, I'm going to talk about his legacy because he shapes your life more than you probably realize. In 1537, that man, John Rogers, that I spoke of, his friend who saved his work in the midst of the arrest, he publishes what is called the Matthew Bible under a fake name, a pseudonym, Thomas Matthew, so that he doesn't end up with the same fate as William Tyndale. The New Testament in the Matthew Bible is totally Tyndale's. Genesis through 2 Chronicles and Jonah are totally Tyndale's. Rogers then takes the work of Tyndale's old friend, Miles Coverdale, from the White Horse Inn days. Coverdale translated the rest of the Old Testament, but he did it from the Latin and the German. So it's not as accurate as Tyndale's translations, but it's still the Bible in English. And that was the Matthew Bible. If you open the Matthew Bible, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you would see some art and in the middle of the art, the letters WT, a nod from John Rogers to his brilliant friend, William Tyndale, who had provided a majority of the translation work. In 1539, just four years after his execution, his final prayer was answered. King Henry's eyes were opened enough to see the need for a Bible to be translated into the English language. And the Matthew Bible was used to produce the Great Bible, Therefore, the Bible that King Henry authorizes is mostly William Tyndale's, the man he fought so hard to silence. 
1611, when the King James Version is published, 84% of the text in the New Testament is William Tyndale's translation verbatim, meaning it could not be improved upon at all. 76% of Genesis through 2 Chronicles and Jonah are William Tyndale's, could not be improved upon. If you grew up reading a King James Bible, if you have one this morning, if the KJV has been used by God to shape your life and your faith, then when you get to heaven, you ought to find William Tyndale and you ought to thank him. We must talk about how Tyndale has influenced how we just speak as English-speaking people. See, as Tyndale studied the original languages, what he would often find out is we don't have an English word that fits the Hebrew and the Greek. So you know what he did? He made new ones. Here are some words and terms that simply did not exist prior to the translation work of William Tyndale. Fig leaves, birthright, ingathering, sin offering, morning watch, hand breath, spoiler, swaddling cloths, slaughter, ministering. The word ministering did not exist before William Tyndale. Behold, In his wonderful little biography on Tyndale, Stephen Lawson says, in addition, there are numerous words that find their first usage in Tyndale's New Testament, including apostleship, brotherly, busybody, castaway, chasten, dividing, fisherman, godly, holy place, intercession, Jehovah, justifier, live, log, mercy seat, Passover, scapegoat, taskmaster, unbeliever, viper, and zealous. It's not that William Tyndale has just changed the way that Christians who speak English talk. He has changed the way that people who speak English talk. Even the word Passover, which is used by Jewish English speakers, did not exist prior to William Tyndale. It is hard to even evaluate how big of an impact this man has had on the English-speaking world. But you've got to understand that what he was doing as he translated the scriptures and they're published and they're circulated, he was codifying and standardizing the modern English language as we know it. He didn't know that he was doing that. It was not his aim to do that, but it absolutely happened. Stephen Greenblatt, one of the leading Shakespeare historians, says, without Tyndale's New Testament, it's difficult to imagine William Shakespeare the playwright. Think about that for a second. This is a Shakespeare historian who says if you don't have Tyndale, you don't even have Shakespeare because so often Shakespeare is drawing on the English words used by Tyndale in his translation for his work. You loved William Shakespeare? You ought to thank William Tyndale. People call Shakespeare the father of the English language. If you want to call him that, then you have to call William Tyndale the granddaddy. He has impacted how you talk, how you read, how you speak about your Lord, how you sing. How many English hymns have been written from the language of the KJV? Our country that we are celebrating this weekend cannot be celebrated without the mention of William Tyndale's name. Fifty years before the KJV was published, the Geneva Bible was already being used by English-speaking Protestants. And when the KJV is published, a lot of those Protestants are like, nah, we're not interested. Because there were a lot of Roman Catholics involved in making that thing, so we're just going to stay away from it. And so they said to the king, you keep your, English, your, uh, your king's Bible. You keep your King James Bible. And they took their Geneva Bible with them as they struck out as pilgrims to start a new world here on the shores of America. When those pilgrims showed up, 
Geneva Bible in hand. It was based on the work of Miles Coverdale in part. For the rest of it, William Tyndale. And that Bible went on to shape who this nation is as a people. Our second president, John Adams, says the Bible contains the most profound philosophy, the most perfect morality, and the most refined policy that was ever conceived upon the earth. His son, John Quincy, our sixth president, said the Bible is of all books in the world that which contributes most to make, them, uh, make men good, wise, and happy. You might be able to dispute whether or not this is a Christian nation, but what you can't dispute is that when you look under the hood of America, you will see that the principles and the ideals that we don't always live up to, that you find there, their source is in the Bible. This country that God has given to us as a place to lay our heads until we get to our eternal home is one built on the values and virtues mined from William Tyndale's translated scriptures. And like the rest of the English-speaking world, this nation owes a great debt to the great Tyndale. With everything that men like Tyndale and all that aided him went through to get us these scriptures, you would think we would never ignore them. You would think that once we learn this story that our English Bible has come to us by blood, we would read it every day going forward. But the reality is, is that familiarity can cause a terrible erosion in the mind where you get so used to something that you take it for granted and you stop attributing the proper amount of worth to it. And so as we close, let me tell you, that happened in England. The Christians have been so desperate for the, Christian, uh, for the English Bible, so desperate to be able to read the Word of God in their own heart language. They clamored for it. Surely they could never forget the importance of it. And yet, about 100 years after Tyndale started the work of translating the New Testament, a man named Roaring John Rogers, a different John Rogers. Been very impressive if William Tyndale's friend John Rogers was still alive and preaching 100 years later. Different one. Roaring John Rogers is preaching at a church in Dedham. English Christians are in darkness again. Not because they don't have a Bible, not because it was chained up by the church, but because they weren't reading it. The great Puritan Thomas Goodwin, Goodwin he was in Dedham to hear Roaring John Rogers because the whole country had been talking about Rogers. He had gained a reputation as the loudest, most awakening, most provocative preacher of his time. And Thomas Goodwin had to hear him. And so he rides his horse to Dedham and he goes and he sits in the congregation and Goodwin says that Rogers started by talking to the people as if he's God. Well, I have trusted you so long with my Bible. You have slighted it. It lies in such and such houses all covered with dust and cobwebs. You care not to look into it. Do you use my Bible so? Well, you shall have my Bible no longer. And Goodwin says that Rogers picked up his Bible and he acted like he was just going to walk off in the middle of the sermon. And people in the congregation actually cried out. And so he comes back and he fell on his knees and now speaks as if he is the church pleading with God and says, Lord, Whatsoever thou dost to us, take not thy Bible from us. Kill our children, burn our houses, destroy our goods, only spare us thy Bible, only take not away thy Bible. And then Roger stood up and he switched back to speaking from God's perspective and said, Say you so? Well, I will try you a little longer. Here is my Bible for you. I will see how you will use it, whether you will love it more, whether you will value it more, whether you will observe it more, whether you will practice it more and live more according to it. 
And Thomas Goodwin said the congregation just sat there weeping. Goodwin left the church. He went to go get on his horse to ride home, and he couldn't. He was so grieved. This is Thomas Goodwin who wrote The Heart of Christ in Heaven and Christ Set Forth for Sinners, two Christian classics. This is one of the most brilliant men of his time, and he was so grieved by his own lovelessness for the Bible that he hung on his horse's neck and cried for 15 minutes before he could bring himself to get on and ride. Are we in need of a sermon from Roaring John Rogers this morning? Do we take our Bibles for granted? Do they gather dust? Our phones, our televisions, our Playstations and Xboxes, our trucks, our cars, our clothes, our closets, they are dusted, they are tended, they are used, they are cleaned again and again. But what of our Bibles? Are they read or are they looked at with good intentions? Is it something that needs to be gotten to or is it something that gets to you every day? There's never been a time in which biblical truth is more easy to access for an English-speaking man or woman. Every excuse we have for not reading the Word of God is nothing. It doesn't work. It doesn't hold up. There is only one move. Repent and act. Love your Bible again. The band's going to come. We're going to close. I know we're behind. We've had two ordinances, and we walked through an entire man's life, so... We'll still beat the Methodists to lunch. I'll always tell you that. It's true. It's true. We need the heart of the psalmist, church. Listen to how the psalmist talks about the Word of God. Do you feel this way about God's Word? My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your Word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Father God, we need the heart of the psalmist. We need the heart of Tyndale. We need a heart for your word. Only spare us thy Bible, Lord. Only take not thy Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Stand on your feet with us as we learn this new song together from Psalm 19, declaring.